Ephesians chapter 5. It's where we've been now for a number of weeks, and we have a few more weeks on it. I'm going to sit down for a while. I don't know how long. But I was thinking about this as I was working through this passage all week. This is one of those passages that, well, how can I say this nicely? As I try and say it nicely, but religious Christians, so this is over, you know, this will quiet you down really quick, but this is one of those passages where I could get up and scream and spit and, and just go after it and, you know, and, and you'd all be going, yeah, amen, brother. And, um... So I'm not going to do that. Because I think this is too important of a passage, and I think it really does apply to too, too many of us, that sometimes in our religious being, we begin to forget where we've come from, how to work with people in these situations, and the simple fact that we could end up there again anyway. Or, maybe some of us are dancing a little bit in these, or dabbling in some of these areas tonight. So I'm not looking for amens as much as I'm looking uh, for the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts and our lives as only He can do. So we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, starting at verse 1. I want you to think for a second, what are the two main concepts, what are the two major concepts that you have of God? When you say, well, what are the two things I first think about when I think of God? How do you see him? How do you see him for your life? This is going to be important. And just kind of think, and if you take notes, write down. What are your two key concepts of God? Because as we continue here in Ephesians 5, remember in Ephesians chapter 4, it said, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have received. Now as we come to chapter 5, Paul is going to continue, continue on this motif of how we walk. And when he talks, he uses the word walk, it's really a metaphor for living. And what he's trying to do is to really highlight, to underscore, underline for every Christ follower that if you're going to name the name of Jesus Christ, walk the walk. Walk the talk. So let's pick it up in... Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, another transitional point, referring back to where he has just been talking. We talked two weeks ago about all these things that God is at work, where he's saying, because you have the Holy Spirit indwelling in you, you have been empowered by me, there's things that you're going to need to be putting off and, and putting on. And because as God also forgave you in Christ, therefore you be imitators of God. How? as dearly loved children. And I want you to walk in love. This is your lifestyle. Even as Jesus, the Messiah, also loved us, and he gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Now, Paul is going to embark here. We'll uh, finish him in the next three weeks, but he's going to talk about seven principles of how to walk. Seven keys for living your life that speak of two things. How you imitate God, and that's going to be worked out in showing your love for God. And we're going to look at two of them tonight. First thing he says, I want you to walk like Father God, like Daddy, like Papa. 
your heavenly Father. See, when I was growing up, uh, I, think, I don't know if you'll be able to see it, but I, there's a picture up here of my, um, a, a picture of me and my dad, I think, maybe. Um, is there a picture up there of me and my dad and my grandpa? I guess not. I guess so. Oh, there it is. You'll see me back there on the little scooter, kind of a little toehead kid. See the guy on the right is Grandpa Claude. Right? That is the man that I wanted to be like. I loved him. He was basically my father for a few, he was kind of the main male father figure in my life for a few years growing up. I loved him. Someone has said that imitation is the greatest compliment. In a generally healthy, well-structured, loving environment, isn't it true that almost every boy wants to be like dad? Almost every girl wants to be like her mom. You see kids who are who are playing. You see kids who are trying on their parents' shoes, their parents' clothes. I, I took this picture last summer on vacation of Joel and Isaac. I thought it was so cute because they're, they're, they're both leaning away, feeding their face. It's almost identical bookend pictures. And when you really love somebody, you begin to take on their characteristics. You look like them. You talk like them. You might even walk like them. I think most parents, we understand that we desire so much for our children to take on our values. I don't know about you, but that always made me think. It should make you think about the way that you're living. Because your children are going to take on, they're going to imitate your values, your beliefs, and your behaviors. So I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to think about this. Maybe make it a part of your conversation tonight as, as, as adults, as parents before you go to bed. What are you doing that you hope your kids will never do? Can I tell you something? Stop. Because they're going to do it. And if you don't want them to do it, then don't. Because if you don't want them to do it, you better have the moral authority to be able to tell them not to. Let me ask you another question. What are you not doing now that you hope your kids will do? Start doing it. Because things are caught more than they're ever taught. Home is really, it's the boot camp of life, loved ones. It's, it's the boot camp for, for your kids. Because whatever they learn there, ultimately down the road, they will probably default to those things that they've observed in their home. Generally speaking, a lot of times you won't see them until, number one, they're adults. And secondly, they have kids. But they will oftentimes default to what they learn. Now, Paul takes this principle and he applies this idea to our relationship with God. So he says, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. you got your Bible. If you write in your Bible, and I do and I recommend you do, underline, underscore that phrase, dearly loved children. He's talking to the church at Ephesus, he's talking to the churches in Asia Minor, and he's talking to the people at Creekside Gathering here tonight. You are a dearly loved children. child. Your father, your heavenly father loves you more than you can comprehend. See, we all love our kids, we would say that. There's nobody on planet, on this planet, that I love more than my bride, my two boys, my daughter-in-law, and my grandson. I remember growing up, every night I would go into each boy's room to pray over them, usually uh, after, oftentimes after they were asleep. 
you know this, you would do this. How often do you go in there and you just catch a picture of them sleeping? You just sit there and you watch them in all of their innocence and their preciousness and their quietness. And there's this, this sense of love that just fills you and, over, and, and flows over you. I'll never forget, we adopted our first son. September 4th, 1983, picked him up three weeks later after he was born. It wasn't more than probably a year later, I had a pastor friend who called us and said, I got another, I got another baby for you. Trina said, yes! You know what I said? Oh! And it wasn't because of the exorbitant cost that it was to adopt. It's, and this was my thought. I said, I don't know if I can love another child like I love this one. And I really had to work through and wrestle that. And did, has anybody else ever had that thought when you had kids? Well, you know, as soon as you see that second one, or if you're pregnant with, uh, with one, it doesn't take long to have this gravitational pull of the heart, and that whole thing quickly gets dispelled. Can I just tell you something? There's a lot of people here tonight. There's people all over the world. God loves every one of us, every one of you the same. He says, you are God's dearly loved child. No favorites. And as you grow in this understanding, guess what? Like a good child, you want to begin to imitate your heavenly father. You want to walk like him, talk like him, think like him, act like your heavenly daddy, Papa. Now this is so important for you to understand. The reason I want you to underscore this, loved ones, is because Paul in a few moments here is going to speak some really strong, straightforward truth that if you don't trust the love of the Father, you will make excuses why you can disregard the truth that he's going to give you. You will begin to see this precious heavenly Father that loves you so deeply, greatly, you'll begin to see him as this Father that is simply prohibitive versus being protective for your life. Because he's, he's going to hit some core areas of every one of our lives. See, the Christian walk is to be Christ-centered. It's all about Jesus. It is relational. It is not an arbitrary set of rules and regulations, but it really is about imitating the life of Jesus Christ. Why? Because that is the best way to live. <laughs> we were talking in staff this week. We all come to the general conclusion it's not always the easiest, but it's definitely the best. So Paul is going to talk to us now and tell us what that looks like. First thing he says is in verse 2. He says, walk in love as Jesus the Messiah did. See, Jesus, never forget, Jesus is love. He walked in love. He personified love in his actions and everything that he did. It says here, walk in love. That's written in the present tense. And what it really means is to keep on walking in love. It's ongoing action. Don't we have a lot of ideas about love? We've got romantic notions. Oh, I'm going to go out tonight on a little date with my bride. We're going to have a nice little dinner. And we're going to feel good about it. Some of you are thinking, I'd take that. <laughs> I'll take that act of love. But it's not love. It's just romance. Sometimes romance is simply, it's not love, but it ends up being lust. How about infatuation? You get a crush on somebody, a little fourth grader, 
My fourth grade crush, her name was Danielle Herman, had long hair. I can still see her, I can almost smell her, but she was just this beautiful girl. I'd run up and hug her on the playground and run off as only a fourth grader could do. Did you know that fourth graders, that uh, on the average 21,235 of them fall in love, infatuation every day? Just, you know, so it's not real love, is it? So we have infatuation. How about this? I really love something. I really love coconut cream pie. Yeah, I really love my, my irons, my golf irons, my, my Callaway irons. Isn't it amazing how we can mess up this whole idea of love? There's so many ideas and usages of it. But Paul says, I want you to walk in love just as Christ loves us. So many meanings, many usages. But Paul uses the word here, agapao, which is the noun form of agape. This is, listen, this is not primarily a, lo primarily a love of feeling, but it's one of action and intent. It's a commitment of the heart. Where someone, here God, is doing something for your well-being, and it's seen in the action of that doing. It does what is best for someone else, for another. And Paul uses the backdrop here of the sacrifice of Jesus to show the height, the depth, the breadth, the width of God's love for you and me. He takes this out of the heavenlies and he brings it down to terra firma. And he says, I want you to understand how you're to walk in love just like Jesus who sacrificed for you. And as he did that, it was like an aroma to God, which pictures from Leviticus chapters 1 through 5, the different kinds of sacrifices that would go up before God. And he's saying this love isn't some kind of manufactured, man-made ideas of what love is about. Father God loves and gave his son, sent him to the cross to die for you and me in our place to forgive our moral debt, to rescue us from eternal punishment, to give us what we never deserved. And on your notes there, you'll see about five or six different scriptures that speak to this whole idea of how God's love gives. Because the truth is, if someone says you can give without loving, but you can never love without giving. So this imitating of the Father is all about us imitating His Son, Jesus Christ, who is the expression of what God the Father is all about. It's not up for grabs. What do you think love is? What do you think God's love is? How does it work? Well, we're going to find out and understand it better because God's love is revealed in Jesus Christ. And we learn how to do it as it's patterned through Jesus and we walk with him because he was the ultimate loving servant of all. So hear this. How do you walk in love? Well, when you choose to follow Jesus... To follow his example, to sacrifice your rights, to walk in love, to be selfless, doing what is best for another when it isn't necessarily in your best interest, guess what? Then you become this sweet scent, this fragrance that wafts up to God. And I suppose the greatest place that this happens is in marriage. I see marriages break apart all the time. And you know why they give up? It's because of this very issue right here. People don't want to give up their rights. Or they don't want to serve. Or they don't want to change. 
They want the other one to change. <laughs> they want the other one to serve. They want the other one to do what's needed, but they don't necessarily want to. So this is the big catch. Oh, <laughs> I'm just falling out of love. Are you kidding me? That's not the kind of love here that God's talking about. See, agape, agapao love is all about a love of choice, a decision, a desire, a determination. That you keep going when the going gets tough. You hang in there when you'd rather quit. You'll work at it. We live in this ultimately selfish world where it's so much easier to bail out than to break through the issues that we face. Paul is saying here, listen, understand, love isn't soft and easy. It is hard and difficult. Now, aren't you glad that Jesus didn't bail out? Oh, man, this is tough. You got to work with these 12 knuckleheads. <laughs> then, after that, then I got to go die on a cross. I don't think I want. You know, he didn't bail. He, he persevered and he worked through That's going to be important because we come to this whole next passage where Paul's going to kind of ratchet it up. Verse 3, he says, okay, this is what you need to know, church in Ephesus, church in Asia Minor, church at Creekside, church around the world. Because of this, if you're going to imitate God, this is how you're going to live. There should be no sexual immorality, any impurity or greed should not even be heard of. Some of your translations will, be, will say, named among you, as is proper for saints. Remember what we said in Ephesians 1, you're either a saint or an ain't. It isn't about Mother Teresa or St. Peter or anybody else. If you walk with Jesus Christ, you're a saint. If you are outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ, you're an ain't. You don't have it. So he says, if you're a saint, these things shouldn't be named among you. Oh, and then he goes in verse 4 and he says, in course, in foolish talking, crude joking, they're not suitable, but rather give thanks. Verse 5. It's almost as if Paul now wants to highlight and underscore this. For know and recognize this. You've heard this. You understand this. So now I want you to make sure that you're getting it straight. And what does he say? No sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Jesus the Messiah and of God. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty, vain arguments, for because of these things, underscore this, God's wrath is coming on the disobedient. Man, it's getting warm up here. <laughs> Verse 7, therefore, now because of what was just said, do not become their partners, for you were once darkness. You saints were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Again, walk, live as children of the light. For the fruit of the light results in this goodness, righteousness, and truth. 
discerning what is pleasing to the Lord. When you walk in that, that's what you'll do. There'll be, there'll be a sense of goodness, righteousness, truth that emanates from your life, and you'll be able to discern what's pleasing to God. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything for what makes, excuse me, everything exposed by the light is made clear. For what makes everything clear is the light. Therefore it is said, get up, sleeper, rise up from the dead, and the Messiah will shine on you. I'm going to say some things right now in the next few minutes that they're not politically correct. They're not popular, but they're very spiritually correct and biblical. I'm not going to apologize for them. It's going to offend some of you probably. That's all right. It's the message. It's for your benefit. It comes from a heart of a pastor that cares about you, but even more the truth of God's word that starts with the Father who says, you are my beloved children. My heart for you and for my kids is to be protective, not prohibitive. I talk to people, friends, all the time. And this is where I can really start preaching. This is where I just want to share with you. I want to. Are, are you? Are you? Are you with me? Yeah, this is going to get. This is going to get nice. I deal with people all the time who are burned in these areas, who come to me after weeks, months, sometimes years, who are like kids that, you know, your kids come back to you, they go, Dad, Mom, I just wish I would have listened to you five years ago or five months ago. Well, a lot of uh, people come to my office and go, oh, I just wish I would have done what I know God wanted me to do back then. Paul names four areas that are improper for God's holy people. Remember, if you're a Christ follower, you're not only a saint, but you're God's holy person, meaning you've been set apart from the world's ways to God's ways and God's purposes. Not perfect, but you are being perfected. You haven't arrived, but you're on a journey of becoming like this God that loves you and you love. Love. Now, again, this is where it's really easy, and you've got to trust. This is where it's really easy as a preacher. This is where it's really easy for you as a Christ follower who, quote, knows a lot of this, to really begin to want to pontificate and really kind of be condescending. And I'm, I'm going to pray and hope I don't come across that way. Because I don't think there's one of us in this area right here that doesn't have to face and deal with aspects of what I'm going to talk about in the next few minutes. But it's the religious people that will kind of, <clears throat> yeah, give it to a pastor, give them to a preacher. And that's not what I'm here to do. It's kind of like golf. Some of you that have golfed, and, and you, you go out and, um, especially if you have any modem of ability to golf, I've seen people go out there and then some guy just shanks an awful shot to the right or to the left or dribbles it off and guy walks up there and goes, uh, you know, Bob, <clears throat> what you need to do is kind of turn your hands to the right, open up your stance and swing a little easier, keep your head still, and that ball is going to... And so the other guy gets up there, the teacher gets up there and goes... <clears throat> and he hits a worse shot. 
Have you ever seen, you ever seen people that do that? And they just kind of get up and they, they tell everybody else what to do. Uh, but it's interesting in Christianity that happens so much. I, I call it the chicken that squawks the loudest usually lays the biggest egg. <laughs> well, what do you mean? Well, uh, did you, you know, Jimmy, and I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to put down, I'm just giving you examples. Be careful. Uh, Jimmy Swigert preached against, you know, um, pornography and all those things, and guess what he did? He gets caught with a hooker. Uh, Jim Baker, you know, the pontificating about holiness. What's he do? He gets caught in an affair. And, and it's really important that as I talk about this, that you don't let that kind of stuff and hypocrisy and, you know, and I, I don't put them down for that, but, but you don't let that be your excuse. But also don't go the other way and let that become who you are, that you become so high and mighty that you forget where you've either come from or where you could go very quickly. So as I share this, I do it with, with great humility. I've been here, I've done that. And you know what I know about me? I'm just unholy enough in my own that I could easily go back to anything. But Paul says this emphatically, listen to this, note it in your Bible there. Don't let even a hint of sexual immorality be uh, known among you. He isn't talking about putting on and putting off here. <laughs> it's not about that right now. It's take care of it. What does he say? Well, coarse and foolish talking and crude joking. They're kind of hard to translate. The, the, the crude joking is the idea that comes from the word Moronologia, um, which is two words. Logia has to do with logos, words. Moron has to do with, well, moron. <laughs> so it's two words. And he says, don't be, a, don't be a talker foolish, a foolish talker. Uh, oh, one commentary I wrote said, has to do with vulgarity. Don't be a vulgar person. Don't be foolish in the way that you talk. Why? Because you're an imitator of the Father. The context, understand the context of where this is. The context is, is, is tied to thoughts on sexual immorality, our vocabulary, how we talk. He says, don't speak things that are coarse and foolish. Don't let it be kidding that happens with innuendo. You know how that happens? With guys, with gals, you know, you're at work and something gets said suggestive. Another idea behind this foolish talking and crude joking is someone that's able to turn something quickly. You ever seen someone that does that? You say something and you mean it to be innocent, and all of a sudden somebody goes, <laughs> turn it. He says, don't do that. It's not supposed to happen with God's people. Oh boy, Terry, man, you're kind of, kind of prudish. No, this is what God says. In Jeremiah, if you've been following the reading plan, you'll see you would have read in Jeremiah 6:12 this great scripture. Where, where, where Jeremiah says about God's people, were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. No, they didn't even know how to blush. Isn't that our culture today? The things that once caused people to blush never talk about. It's nothing but a joke in our culture because we're so desensitized. I love what Edwin Lewis Cole said, a preacher and minister that passed away a couple of years ago. He said, you can tell the nature of the man by the words he chooses. 
I told this story before, I think, but it really, and, I, and, I, and this brought me back to that. But one time I, I had this kind of just slang word. It wasn't a swear word, but it was a slang word that I used. Finally, somebody's here at the church said to me, you know, Terry, I'm not trying to be picky, but that just doesn't sound like Jesus. I quit using it. This person wasn't being legalistic. I think they really loved me. But they were challenging me. Was I imitating the Father? See, then he gives an alternative. He says this, this is what you do. Instead of talking with coarse jesting, he says, do this. I'm going to give you an alternative. Speak thanks to God. Wow, what a great change. Can you imagine at work if someone's doing that? You don't stand up and pontificate. Oh, boy, oh, bless God, we're not going to talk like that. Maybe you walk away and you just go, you know, Lord, thank you that you're changing my thinking and my talking patterns. I want to just give you praise for what you're doing in my mind. So where I would used to embrace that and go after it, I'm not going to do that anymore. And then he says, no, don't let that be a name among you. And then he says in the next one, he says, sexual immorality. This is sexual intercourse outside of marriage. In the original language, it is sexual intercourse outside of marriage. It is premarital sex. It is adultery, prostitution. It's all wrong. Anything that happens in that arena outside of the boundaries of marriage is not God's way. You know, this is the question a lot of you might be thinking right now, or people ask, well, how far can I go then? <laughs> I mean, let me get as close to the fire as I can without getting burned. And I get this question fairly regularly, but if you read First Thessalonians chapter 4, part of God's will, it says, I think it's in verse 3 and 4, it says, God's will is that you be sanctified, set apart from sexual immorality. And it says, in that, quit defrauding one another. Can I tell you what the idea is there that I got this from Butch Plummer a number of years ago? But it's the idea, defrauding one another, of raising desires that you can't rightfully fulfill. So how far can you go? I mean, I get it all. You know, can we do this? Can we do that? Now I've got an answer. Does it, does it raise up desires in that person, desires that you can't fulfill? That is your line. Anything else is going to be sexual immorality. This is the key. Don't rev the engine if you can't race the car. <laughs> Tell your kids that and explain it to them. And sometimes you may have to be graphic because people are with me. Next thing he talks about, oh, let me just give you another one. Proverbs 3, uh, 3 uh, 6.32. This is why this is so critical with God. Proverbs 6.32 says this, whoever commits adultery, this is, and, and this could encompass sex outside of marriage, with a woman lacks understanding. Notice he gives the responsibility to the man. Hey, men, man up. Do what God wants you to do. Lead that woman that you either want to marry or let her go. And women, can I just say, 
God loves you. Let him be your father. Let him be your husband until you find a guy that won't violate you. You're worth more. You are the daughter of the king. Find a man that will take care of you. And he won't lust after you, but he will love you. And if you love, you can wait. Teach your children, your boys, that, men. But he goes on to say, he who does so destroys his own soul. He's talking about soul damage here. See, we think that this sex thing is just kind of two people getting the urge to merge and doing it. God says, no, it's a mystery. It's a spiritual mystery. Two people come together in this act of sexuality. And what happens is, as he talks about in Genesis, they cleave together. It's, it's like two pieces of board being glued together. What happens when you separate two pieces that have been glued together? There's fragments, there's parts that are left. Literally, when you divorce, when you have these relationships outside the confines of marriage, there's little pieces of you. That's really true. The old, I don't know if they use it anymore, but when I was growing up, I was, hey, I'm going to get a piece tonight. It's truer than what you think. There's a piece of you that is left. That's why people become shallow and shells of themselves because they think they're going to find the right love and the right relationship by giving themselves and it never works. It only comes down to brokenness and shallowness where people become a shell of themselves. It damages their soul and for some it takes years to be healed from it. The next one is impurity. That word here is pornos. We get the word pornography from it. It, it. it just it refers to a broad range of sexual activity that makes a person unclean. Pornography. Listen, it defiles the person who views it. It defiles the person who makes it, and it defiles the person who is part of it. And can I tell you something else? It defiles the people who are around it. There are ripple effects in the relational orbit of people who get involved in pornography. Come sit in my office some month, some week. Be a fly. Hear the stories of brokenness. And he says, don't let that be named among you. Greed. The word translated as covetousness basically means, I want more. What's the context? Sexuality. The last of the Ten Commandments forbids coveting your neighbor's wife. And I believe it's used here in the same thing. Don't be greedy for sexual conquests and activity and actions outside of God's working that should not be named among you. Because what happens is, is this greed, you begin to see other people as objects of sexual gratification and fulfillment. It's the idea Jesus said in Matthew 5, 27 and 28, he says, listen, you've heard it say you're not to commit adultery. I say, don't even look on another person with lustful intent. It's not the first sight that says, oh, they're beautiful. It's the second one that says, I'd like to see them. <laughs> 
He says, that's not to be among you. See it in the context of this letter. See, we saw in the beginning, loved ones, Christ is raised from the dead, made alive. He makes us alive. We're his holy ones, his saints. He is imputed to us his life, his goodness, his godliness, his righteousness. But Paul says, if you begin to live like the rest of the world, pretty soon you'll begin to be idolatrous for these things. And if you talk to people that get caught up in this, that becomes, it becomes their idol for fulfillment. Paul says, don't let these be named among you because of who you are. Remember, hear me, back to chapter 1. Our holiness, our righteousness can't be earned. It comes from Jesus and his work alone on the cross, chapters 1 through 3. But what has happened throughout church history is there's teaching that comes in that says how you live really doesn't matter. Loved ones, let me come as a spiritual father. Paul says that is not true. The Bible says without holiness, without being set apart to God, no person can see God. The holiness to see God has been imputed on us through Jesus Christ. And then we're to begin to walk it out. That's the whole idea of chapters 4, 5, and 6. Can I tell you something? If you're not walking it out, then maybe you really haven't experienced this work of God. If you're not practicing it, if you're not growing in wholeness and wholesomeness and holiness, you, you really need to consider and see where is Jesus at work? in my life. You can come to church, raise your hands, sing the songs, know the liturgy and know the words. But if it isn't showing up, loved ones, in your experience, do you really know Jesus, the lover of your soul? Do you really know the Father who dearly loves you. I don't like all this. But you know what? It's truth. And the reason it's hard is because I see the brokenness of it. I mean, look at it. He says there in verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty arguments. Because, get this, God's wrath is coming on the disobedient. We don't talk a lot about that. Remember in verse chapter 2, verse 3, he talks about the wrath, God's wrath. And he says, that's what you were going to experience, but now you're children of God. And he makes this change, he weaves this, this, this mosaic of God's work in you and how you should become and change. Be changing, be transformed. The wrath of God, he says, comes because of these things. What things? Well, sexual immorality, impurity, greed, pornography, coarse and foolish talking, crude joy. Oh, that's where God says his wrath is going to come. Now, this phrase is used sparingly by Paul. John uses it in the book of Revelation, where the wrath of God comes in a final judgment scene. We understand that. That's when God's ultimate wrath comes, poured out on humanity that is here. And then the judgment. 
But now hear this. God's wrath is seen in Romans chapter 1, where they're talking about a person. They show this person, uh, and I think it's about verse 20 or 21, where this person refuses, or this people refuses to acknowledge God. And every decision they make rejects the truth of who God is and what He does. And it says pretty soon, there's like this six or seven steps downward spiral that this person gets into. And a lot of it has to do with immorality. And then all of a sudden it says their conscience is seared. And guess what? There's no way back. It's a picture where God gives a person over to darkness and he's helpless to find his way back to God. That's what wrath does. It renders one helpless to find their way back based on their decisions, your decisions, my decisions. We get to this place where it happens. When? I don't know. How long? I couldn't tell you. What do you do to get there? I don't know. But who would want to find out? See, I asked you about your concept of God. That's why it's so important. Because he says here, let no one deceive you with empty words, vain words. See, God gives us truth. But there's vain reasoning out there. There's empty logic that is so easy to buy into today. It simply says something like this. Oh, God is love. doesn't care how you live. Just confess and he'll forgive. Yes, that's, well, there's truth in that. But there's a minor problem with that. That isn't all the Bible teaches is standalone truth. It's important because we believe it all starts with grace in Jesus. His work on the cross, what he's done for us, not what we do. But it's important because we believe it all starts with him. You can't get around this truth in Ephesians chapter 4 and 5. And the Bible says that if you don't have that position with Christ, if you do have that position with Christ, but you're not changing... If it isn't being seen in your life, well, you better check it. There was a group called the Gnostics in the New Testament. John wrote, 1 John, basically to combat this. That's why he talks so much about sin. The Gnostics believe this. Matter is evil, our spirit is pure, which is totally opposite of what the Bible teaches. The Bible says we have a, a spirit that's dead, needs to be made alive. Our body is amoral. It doesn't control what we do. This is what controls it. So they believed that because the body was, 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 was the matter and the body was evil and the spirit was pure, they, they taught this, do whatever you want. Eat, drink, and be merry. Lay with whomever. Just have fun. Because it doesn't touch your spirit. So that was the teaching of that day. We hear that in the church today sometimes. Just do whatever you want. And then just kind of, well, go on Sunday and confess it. I have a little boohoo session. Take care of it. And then go live like hell the rest of the week. Can I tell you what that is? Uh, Paul would say that's empty and vain logic. Now hear me. Because you know I believe in grace. God is not intimidated by your perfections or my imperfections. You have them, I've got them, but he doesn't. And because he doesn't, that's the reason that he isn't intimidated by where we are, how we're thinking, as we're working to get our act together. 
But if you notice in chapter 4 where it talks about working, he says, I want you to put off and I want you to put on work habits. Make sure you're working right. Make sure that you're dealing with your anger. Right value systems systems is going to lead you to give. That you're going to speak words that build up and bless and not beat down. We're growing in grace, aren't we? But loved ones, he's so serious about this that we allow empty language to become our cover for sexual impurity. He doesn't give a pass on it. He doesn't give a pass on vain thinking that says, yeah, I'm married, but I still want to go to bed with other people. And God understands. I mean, He created me. You think that's funny because you, but you, you don't hear these crazy things. Maybe you do, but I hear them. It's God's fault. Oh, gee, where'd that start? I mean, God understands. And you know what? I've only slept with three people, three different people in my life in the last month instead of seven. Oh, single guy. Well, you know, man, God just gave me the urge to merge. I got a strong drive. God made me this way. Sure you know him. I'll say this with great love from the Apostle Paul. For some tonight, it might be time to come clean, to repent, to get help. Because you do, you're here, most of you, I think, because you want to live for Him. Because you were in darkness, but now you're a child of the light. And so He says, walk as children of the light. Listen, as children of the light, living in Him and for Him, our life is to know what pleases our Lord Jesus. See, I find out, when you live as a child of the light, this is what you're going to do, friends. You're going to say, I want to know what pleases the Lord Jesus. I don't want to live to, to please the world. I don't want to bow down to the peer pressure of it. I want to be a product of the light. Children of the light, it says, imitate and walk in the light. And like we talked about two weeks ago, God has empowered you to be able to go. That's darkness. No, thank you. No, that's not good either. No. Ah, this is light. I'm going to walk in that. I'm going to live that. I'm going to decide for that. Because see, Romans 12 says this, that God has given us the ability to renew our minds. God isn't going to do it for you. He's already, he's already done it. He's placed His Holy Spirit to empower you. Now listen, hear me. I understand there are people dealing with addictions. But the key is, is if you are, that is one thing and we want to help you. But you've got to drag this stuff into the light and not cover it with darkness. That's the hope. We're almost done. Verse 13, notice what he says. He says, those of you, if you walk in the light, you're called to expose them. This is, listen, hear me. This is based on relationship, not legalism. Some people look at this and they go, well, I've just become a kingdom mugger. You're not a rebuker, man. I'll tell everybody, well, you got darkness in your life. And some theologians believe that that's what this passage teaches. And I think there's some of that. I have a responsibility at times. People come to my office or if I see them and, and God opens a door, I'll say, listen, you got to change this. Not for me, not for the church, but for God and for the benefit of your life. 
don't have the right just to walk up to somebody and say, Hey, God, well, God wants you to change you. Dirty, rotten sinner. It comes out of relationship. Don't be a kingdom mugger. There's a lot of people that just think they walk around. No, that's not what we do. We do that a lot. We're not some kind of spiritual referee throwing a flag at people. 15-yard penalty, fornication! <laughs> See, loved ones, our life has to be the kind that there's so much light of Jesus in us that people want to change because they spend time as why? Because light is dominant. You control darkness with light. You don't control light with darkness. Whenever there's light, it dispels it. And when you're living as a light, you're lighting darkness for others. That's really the intent of this passage. As mere mortals, how can we imitate God? With all these implications, can I tell you what it means? It simply means this. That you become the visibility of God's life through you in your world. And these things are not mentioned among you. This is what I want to say. Heavy stuff. If, if, if you're involved in these things, and you really love Jesus, and you say, I love Jesus, then it is important to drag it into the light and to deal with it. And I will help you. I'm not your answer, but I will help you. But you'll have to make the decision to deal with it, to drag it from the darkness into the light. It's the only way you'll begin to change, and that's the only way you'll be able to imitate the Call me, email me, let me work with you and help you. Because at some point, loved ones, every one of us need to repent of any of these areas that we're involved with. Because at the point that you don't, you will not be able to imitate the one who loves you, the one who's given his life.